0: Aliens and flying, saucers, flying, saucers, flying saucers. This is all in a Hey, welcome to the 123rd episode of Two Writers and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to political analysis to dog fancy essays to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode, well, it isn't the happiest in this series. My guest is Joan Neeson, the terrific sports writer and one of many top shelf scribes to have been laid off last week by Sports Illustrated. And the two of us, both XSIers, are going to talk about it bluntly, painfully about being let go, about what to do now, about watching an all-time great magazine coming closer and closer to, I hate to say this, it's reckoning. So let's have a discussion that probably needs to be heard right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. All right, well, Joan, um, it's funny. Two seconds ago when we uh, connected, I said, hey, how's it going? You just freaking lost your job at Sports Illustrated in a blitzkrieg at that magazine that is so freaking depressing and heartbreaking. I feel like that's the worst opening question ever. It's like asking someone, how's your mother after she got run over by a truck two days earlier? So I guess I rephrase by saying, um, how are you handling this?
1: Well, fortunately no one's been run over by a truck um, in my life. At least it's, it's okay. You know, it's, I it's sort of funny, I, I kind of figured out I was being laid off while I was covering uh, the St. Louis Blues home opener and uh, was surrounded by some friends and was in St. Louis where I grew up. And so I'm kind of just hanging out with my parents this weekend and laying low. And there are worse places to be when you get, you know, really bad news than surrounded by a lot of close friends and my family, which so that's kind of a nice perk, I guess I would say.
0: How did you um? how did you find out?
1: So I think this has kind of been reported. We all got emails about about meetings that were going to give us our fate. And I I should say, I didn't know for sure I was going to be laid off. I knew that the language in my email didn't mention a future. And so that was sort of the uh, tip off that I had that maybe my my meeting was not going to be the meeting where um, continued employment was going to be offered. So I I didn't know for sure, I should say, but I was... um, you know, using my investigative tools at my disposal to get the sense that that was the case.
0: So, do they actually call you back to New York? Do you sit down in an office with, I don't know, whoever, Steve Caneller or Chris Stone or John Wertheim, or is it some guy from the Maven you've never seen before? Like, so I
1: was actually just um, on a phone call, was kind of. So, I, I'm not in New York. I didn't go to New York. I haven't been to New York um, since earlier this summer. So, um, it's kind of a weird like, distance between it all, but uh, it is what it is. I don't know that. It would have been any different where I, wherever I was. It was news was delivered and that was that.
0: It's a weird, like I got a lot of calls from people and it was like, man, how do you feel? How do you feel? Now that just because I used to work there and I freaking love Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. I grew up loving Sports Illustrated. I know so many people there. And I am not entirely sure how to feel because while I hate all this, I just don't know where print goes. Like what's yeah. supposed to happen?
1: Oh, it's a great question. I mean, I. The video that you put up on Twitter earlier today, kind of paging through the latest issue and all the great stuff that's been done in Sports Illustrated recently. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm biased because, you know, some of that stuff has had my byline on it and I was lucky enough to, you know, be working there. But, you know, I feel like if, if you're producing a product of the quality that we were producing and then this happens to you, I don't know, I don't know who's going to do print right if, if we couldn't. And I, I know that. know, there's lots of commentary about how things have been run at Sports Illustrated and at any print publication over the last decade with, you know, the transition to digital and no one out there has done it perfectly. But I think we were, you know, doing a pretty good job putting out that magazine and making it something we could be really proud of. So what is the future? I don't know. And I've had people say to me over the last couple of days, people with really great intentions saying, I'm going to cancel my subscription. And it's, I don't know what to say back to them because it's like, I still have a lot of good friends who work there and you should read their stuff. Don't, don't, don't necessarily cancel your subscription. Um, But then at the same time, there's this kind of righteous anger, but ah, God, I don't know what the future is. I wish if somebody did, they'd be really, really wealthy.
0: It's really, it's actually, it's interesting because um, my partner in baseball writing when I was at SI was Steve Mm -hmm. Canella. Now Steve is editor, you know, one of the co-editors of the magazine. I love Steve Canella, and I think he's I think he's one of the best guys out there. You know, there's a part of me that's like, this is, I love Steve Canella," So I guess good for Steve, but at the same time, I don't know. What is he taking over? What are they, what is the maven going to do to this place? What? Yeah. You know what it is? This is, I don't, right, I think this is it. They screwed up with the website so badly so long ago. <laughs> yes. That it's, it's, there's nothing there and there's no real reason to go look at it. They had the vault, which could have been amazing and they totally screwed it up. Um, it could, the path could have been so different. And I just feel like you can't go back, like you can't go back in time and change it. So I just don't know what you can do. Exactly. It's,
1: and it's, it was at any moment, it's so hard to know, you know, what the future is going to hold with everything digital. And like you said, you know, there were some decisions made that probably weren't the right ones. I can remember back to though, when I was, I was an intern at sports illustrated, um, when I finished grad school in the summer of 2011, and that was right Good. when iPads were becoming a thing and Sports Illustrated was kind of on the cutting edge of having a really nice iPad app. I want to mm-hmm. say we were the second iPad app in the iTunes store for a magazine.
0: I remember it. And it was great. And
1: Yeah. And I remember being in these meetings and these intern presentations that summer. And it was like, this place is on the cutting edge. And, you know, we are at that point. I mean, it was we were a magazine first and foremost. when there was that huge divide between web and print that is, you know largely gone by the wayside, but still, you know, everyone struggles with that, but it was, I was a magazine intern and there were web interns and I did magazine Mm -hmm. stuff and there was that still that huge divide. And part of my job was taking the magazine pages and fact checking them and checking them for style, whether they were in the vertical or horizontal layout for when you flipped your iPad. And that was so important. And we were doing, and it's thinking back on that. It's like, God, how was that only, I mean, eight years ago.
0: Let's actually take this apart a little bit, okay? I was at SI from 96 to 03. You have been there for the last five years uh, until recently. What do you think went wrong?
1: Gosh, I, I think that we did get a bit hampered by the what I just mentioned, sort of the divide between print and digital, because I think in a way Sports Illustrated was lucky enough to be producing this amazing premium print product that there was so much value placed on that when other people's values were shifting out there toward, toward the digital space. And I don't know that we ever kind of were able to put a value on some of the digital products we could have been creating. There's been like not much continuity with podcasts over at sports. So that's one thing that I look at is, you know, a market that's super, you know, pretty saturated now in the podcast about sports sense in terms of this is our football podcast and this is our basketball mm-hmm. podcast. And it's just a place that I think Sports Illustrated never got a huge toehold in. That's something I look at, but I have a hard time articulating what be what about the divide was what went wrong. But I think it is. I think you can trace it back to that to that sort of wall between print and digital that did exist. Like I, I do think it is funny to think back, like twenty twenty eleven. You know, I had a Facebook, I had you know Twitter. We, the world was on the internet, and yet we still had interns who had jobs that were some for the magazine and some for the website, and that's kind of. In the moment, it didn't seem so anachronistic, but looking back, it really does.
0: I've had mixed feelings through the years about Bill Simmons and some of the things he's done, right? Mm -hmm. But the guy, give him freaking his props because he's always two steps ahead. You look at The Ringer and they load it up on podcasts way ahead of time. And people say, oh, The Athletic, early on, The Athletic. Well, The Athletic figured out this thing, this model that actually seems to be working. And I'm just not sure there was ever at SI someone who is two steps ahead. You know what I mean? It always felt like it was react- reacting and not being sort of ahead of the curve in a very positive way.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's definitely some truth there. And I think it's almost a result of being so good at what they were doing in terms of having this stacked, you know, cast of writers and just being like, well, we have all this talent, we'll be fine. Um, right. Instead of thinking we have all this talent, but how do we deploy it in the new way that everyone wants? And And yeah, I mean... The pod, like I said about the podcast, the way The Ringer has deployed podcasts. I mean, I, I have, you know, some friends who work there and some friends who've worked for for Bill or worked for Bill Grantland and who've done so much in the podcast space, even though they're technically really they are writers. And there's not really somebody like that at SI. And like, obviously, there's more beyond podcasts. But I think you're right. It is kind of the just what's the next thing down the line. And I mean, I'm certainly not smart enough to know. But so, I, you know, I can't disparage right. it. But, yeah, I think that's been been a problem.
0: I used to say when I was early at SI and they had the website and I know I'm not like any, I'm certainly no genius when it comes to stuff. I used to think like, okay, what are the things you have going for you? Well, number one, you have the swimsuit issue, which is still this huge brand and you have this website. This is early on. They never did fantasy sports. And I always was like, have a fantasy league, start your fantasy football league. And as much as I always hated the swimsuit issue, and I always hated the swimsuit issue, have the grand prize. The winners get to go on a shoot with whoever Heidi Klum for a week. Yeah, use whatever strengths you have. You know, use nostalgia. Start having Sports Illustrated nostalgia events where you you blow up covers and you get to sit with Lawrence Taylor out of so and so and like bring the pages to life and play on your history. And I'm just sad, Joan. You know? <laughs> I'm just yeah. really sad. I'm so and to see these Maven guys is crushing. Yeah,
1: it's everyone this week has asked me. You know, how are you doing? And it's like I'm. I'm fine. You know, I'm 31 years old. I don't have kids that I'm putting through school yet. I don't have, you know, any of those stressors that, you know, I know are probably down the line for me once I, you know, become like a full on adult, which is a crazy thing to say at 31, but I don't know. I could be way worse. I'm really sad for sports illustrated and for, I got my dream job when I was 25 years old at this venerated place where like I had in my room at the time, like multiple framed sports illustrated covers. And I remember the day that, you know, I officially got my job offer from John Wertheim, looking around the room and being like, I fucking get to work there. And, uh, you know, that's the thing for me. It's like, there's just so much history. And I'm like, I'm a sports nerd. I'm more than that. I'm a writing nerd. I'm more than that. Probably I'm a history nerd. There is this inherent history to the place that, you know, I just hate to think might be wrapping up now.
0: I got hired in 96 and I became, so I was around the same age you were when you started there. And <laughs> I, um. I became a staff writer pretty quickly. And it was actually me, uh, John Wertheim and Grant Wall all sort of moved up the the ranks together. And I remember, I don't know what year it was, but like my first, they used to do, they would fly in all the writers. So we'd fly in all the writers for state of sports illustrated meaning at, uh, around the holidays. And then they'd have this huge, enormous bash. And and I remember sitting in the room and it's like me, Wertheim Grant, and then like Gary Smith, Rick (laughs) Riley, Richard Hoffer, Steve Russian, and you know, you don't belong there, but you're so freaking honored to be there. It was yeah. just insane. I feel like, you know, you're 31. Do your peers in media have the appreciation for SI and the history of SI that you do? Or is that a rare thing in, for people in their I thirties?
1: I think people do. I think it might be kind of the next kind of group behind me where it peters out. I remember when I got my job, I mean, I was like, first of all, I was like, someone's playing a trick on me for, you know, I thought that for a while. And, but any of my friends who are kind of my, you know, age group, I feel like my close friends in media are guys a couple years younger than I am, maybe down to like, you know, 28, 29 people in their, you know, late thirties now. And I mean, everyone was just geeking out with me and just same type thing. Everyone was like, this is my issue that I have framed. And this is the one that I remember when I reading when I was 15. And, so, yeah, I think it's still there for this generation, you know, us like late 80s, early 90s babies. But I, I do mm-hmm. think it might sort of peter out beyond that for the kids who've always had the Internet. And I feel like the next group behind me are and some of the people my age are this way, too. I wasn't are the, the Bill Simmons column nerds. So that's what they grew up on. And they were on page two and they were that was sort of their their Bible. I was much more of a Sports Illustrated um, version of that.
0: What was your thing when you were a kid, Sports Illustrated wise?
1: I loved baseball. I was 10 the summer of the home run race and I'm from St. Louis. I have kind of a math brain. So I loved the stats inherent in baseball. So that summer I spent like my entire summer going to swim team practice and like highlighting box scores in the St. Louis post dispatch. I grew up in a family that loved sports. I mean, just that's my family watches sports. We love sports, but that was my entry point to really reading about sports, buying sports books. Um, and any baseball story in Sports Illustrated was what I read. I also, I loved the Rick Riley. Something about yeah. the way he wrote back then, I mean, that was, that spoke to me so much. I, I bought so many of his books before I was even, so for some context, I, I was this little baseball nerd um, circa 1997, and then I, um from there on, I liked sports, but sort of got away from it. I went to college, I was an econ major, I had no intention of being a sports writer. But even in that time, I read Rick Riley's books, just lots of sports books still. So baseball, though, was my entry point to SI.
0: You went to Georgetown, as you just said, a degree in economics. You got a master's degree from Missouri. Are you sitting there bored in your economics classes thinking I want to be a sports writer?
1: (laughs) No, um, I went to college for for economics. Like you said, I always loved to write. Um, I used to write novels about my American Girl dolls um, when I was like five novels being like one sheet of paper.
0: And um, they know you were writing them. The American girl doesn't know that they were being profiled. <laughs> I mean, I, I told them. I don't know how much they yeah, heard. heard.
1: So yeah, I like at Georgetown, there's no journalism major, but they have some great night classes taught by working professionals who are living in the DC area. And I was pretty bored with econ. That part definitely true. And I started signing up for these night classes and I took a class from a guy who worked for the Wall Street Journal, a woman who had worked at Glamour and People. And I just fell <laughs> in love with journalism. I had thought about going to Mizzou undergrad for journalism, but wasn't sure I uh, knew what I wanted to do in such a way that I wanted to go to a school where it was kind of like you're doing journalism or you go out and get another major that might not be necessarily the caliber of education I would have gotten at Georgetown. Um, so didn't go to Mizzou then. Then I applied for my master's with the intention of being a business reporter um, and went to Mizzou, reported, you know, reported first day of classes, telling everyone that was my plan and my first semester of grad school, you work at the paper at the Columbia, Missourian. You have to pick a beat. And there wasn't a business beat. If you wanted to do business, it was kind of more like city government was your beat. And I mm-hmm. had just left D.C. and was avowedly hating politics um, start to finish just after living in D.C. Um, yeah. So didn't want to do city government. And everyone told me the sports editor, um, a man named Greg Bowers, who has since retired, Everyone told me that Greg was like the guy, if you wanted to become not only a great reporter, but also a great writer. Um, the, the kind of talk around the newsroom that I'd heard was on this, you know, intro beat. It's really, really reporting heavy. And sometimes, you know, writing will come next. But Greg was a guy who would give you all of it. So I said, I like sports. And I um, signed up. And then at the end of the semester, um, a friend of mine who is now um, at the ringer with, with Bill Simmons, Robert Mays, he was I graduated college a year early. So I was the same age as all of the seniors that year. So he was a senior at Mizzou and he had just covered the football team. And I said to him, I was like, well, I'm bummed out. My semester on the sports desk is over. I guess I'll become a business reporter now. And he was like, what are you talking about? Why don't you just do this? And I kind of looked at him and like he was crazy. And then I kind of realized maybe I could. And my parents thought I was nuts and. Just kept doing the sports
0: thing. Were your parents upset with you?
1: You know, I have great parents. Um, they're very supportive. I think I was a pretty easy kid, so I didn't stress them out too much. And so they weren't used to me telling them something that was mildly stressful, I think, um, in terms mm. of sounded a little less secure than what I was planning. But um, after some initial disbelief, they were super supportive. And I think, honestly, I, I kind of told them this. And then the next fall, I covered the Missouri football team. And I was really into it and they saw how much I loved it. I was at school and grad school covering the team. And from there I got some great internships and I think my parents realized, well, you know, she must be decent at this. So, you know, we're not going to say anything else. And they've been super supportive.
0: It's, uh, it's funny. My, uh, my mom used to say uh, when I was in junior high school, I was like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And she'd be like, you got to be a lawyer, be a lawyer, be a doctor, <laughs> you know, kind of Jewish parent. You know, when I got hired by SI, I was actually crying and I called her and I was like, I told you, I told you. <laughs> It's like one of, the great, one, of the, one of the great moments of my life. Did you have a moment? Like, did you have a moment?
1: I mean, I think getting hired by Sports Illustrated was definitely that. My hiring was sort of a, I mean, I don't know how it went for you, but I, I was more, I don't think I ever gave him my resume. I think it was kind of a, John Worsheim called me and said, do you want to talk about a job? And I said, sure. And I met him when the Broncos, I was on the Broncos beat, when the Broncos were playing the Patriots in Boston. He happened to be in Boston. And we talked about the job. And then I met him and Chris Stone. And a couple others were all in Denver for Peyton Manning's Sportsman of the Year party a couple, maybe three weeks later. And I met them all again. And then I want to say, like, I I think I kind of knew in that meeting that I was probably getting an offer. So there wasn't like this amazing moment where I realized I'd gotten the job. But I want to say my first I was at the Super Bowl for them that year because there was some my exit from the Denver Post was sort of a little uh, interesting and I was supposed to cover the Super Bowl for them, but then it ended up that they just decided to move on um, once I'd gotten the new job. So Sports Illustrated sent me to the Super Bowl, but my first actual kind of assignment that I got that I wasn't already going to be doing at my old job was going back to Mizzou to cover um the night that Michael Sam announced that he was coming out um, as gay. We kind of knew it was happening, but he gave the story to someone else, but Greg Bishop and I, we were hired at the same time and uh, Greg and I were sent to Columbia to be on the ground for the story. And so it was, we were these two new hires, first of all. So we kind of had no idea how anything worked at SI and we were just kind of sent off to cover this sort of momentous event. And I love stories that are like that that go beyond sports. And so that was cool for me to begin with, but being back on campus where where I'd gone to school, you know, several years later and, reporting on this really, at the time, monumentous story. That night, I was sitting having a beer after all was said and done, and I was just like, oh my gosh, how am I here?
0: Wait, I can't. uh, I got to be the good reporter here. Uh, What happened to the Denver Post with your departure?
1: So Cliff's Notes version my biggest hang up with even talking to John about the SI job was I had only been at the post. It was, I was there for a season. I knew my end goal in life was not to be a beat writer. I don't think I'm a very good beat writer um, because I don't care yeah. who's practicing and who's not um, and who's on the practice squad and who got promoted to the active roster today. And when the Denver Post hired me, they asked me my long term goals and I said, I want to work at Sports Illustrated someday. I want to be a feature writer. And they said, that's great. Um, so I, I kind of thought You know, I thought we were on the same page going in about the fact that I didn't want to be 50 years old and a 30, you know, a 25 year veteran of covering the Broncos, but I wanted to be there for five years. I thought, you know, I thought this is a huge beat. You know, at the time it was Peyton Manning. Um, it was, they were the team. It was them, the Patriots. They were, that was it. And so it was an amazing job. And I had wonderful editors and wonderful coworkers, a great beat partner. Um, so when John called me, it was kind of like, I have to take this call. I would be crazy not to but I wish this were happening in two years so when it all went down the line I kind of went to them when I was offered the job and I said I was offered this job and I, you know I'm pretty sure I'm gonna take it and um kind of went back and forth and they were very kind to me in terms of trying to keep me on and the last sort of back and forth with it all um I'd said no matter what I decide I am fully committed to Staying on through the Broncos playoff run because I would not want to leave you guys high and dry at this point. This is like, I think this was the bye week of the playoffs, maybe, or maybe a little yeah. bit before that, maybe end of December around Christmas time. So that was sort of agreed upon because I'm a people pleaser. I, I hate making people upset. Um, so big thing for me was like, I'm sticking this out probably through the Super Bowl because we all sort of thought that's where they were going to get. And so that was kind of agreed upon. And then once they took the Sports Illustrated job, they decided that wasn't the direction they wanted to go in. And they'd rather just kind of promote someone else to the beat and let me go my way. So I had a pretty frantic phone call with John Wertheim, who was, I believe, actually in the airport on his way to the Australian Open saying, who do I need to talk to to get my start date moved up? I need to start working at SI much sooner than six weeks from now. (laughs) SI was great. They were like, well, you know more about the Broncos than anybody on staff for us. So, um, hop on in and let's get this going. And I covered the playoff run and. The Super Bowl lost to the Seahawks that year.
0: Do you feel like the Pope, were there hurt feelings about you leaving or was it just, I don't know, was it to fuck her We're just moving on? Like,
1: I think a mixture. I think the people who I worked with directly, um, were pretty upset at how it all went down and felt like they'd done me a little bit wrong. Um, and I still have good relationships with those people and, um, my former coworkers at the Post too. I mean, I can't speak more highly from people about the people I worked with there in Denver. I learned so yeah. much in that even brief time on the beat, but I think there was, I think some of the higher ups were, um, I mean, I guess I can say this now. I mean, they, they don't know me anything. The, the editor of the paper at the time told me I was going to be a glorified intern at Sports Illustrated. Man. So, um, I'm happy to have what proved him wrong. I think it was some kind of weird try way to get me to stay. I've never really said that to anyone and, but I feel like I can say that now. I don't know. That was, that was not a fun thing. And I'm, I don't respond well to negative reinforcement. I'm, so that didn't, didn't do great for me. That I was, that was not happy, but, um, but yeah. So I, but I think the people, the people who I and that he is no longer at the paper anymore. Um, he's long gone. The people I worked with were still there. Some of them were just so gracious and um so proud of me. I mean, everyone I told about the job offer, including my beat partner, Mike Kliss, just basically said to me, like, well, that's my that was my dream job when I was your age. Go get it. I don't think anyone thought I was making the wrong move and nor do I think I was making the wrong move. I, I had five and a half great years at SI
0: on behalf of other writers in the world, on behalf of myself and the whole Perlman family, I would like to say to your former editor, go fuck yourself. Like that's a really <laughs> shitty thing to shit on someone's freaking dream. Like that is just so diabolical. I know like maybe he was feeling defensive or something, but like, that's just yeah. wrong a million different yeah. ways.
1: And I like to think maybe it just kind of came out in a meeting that was maybe a little, not going the way he wanted it to go. <laughs> I think I really wanted to give both jobs consideration and not just go with I me and, there's just a gut reaction to getting a job offer from Sports Illustrated. It's take it right now, um, or there was then, I guess. But uh I really wanted to think the whole thing out because I was on a great beat. And I was trying to really, you know, trying to not do wrong by anyone. But I think the meeting was probably, you know, I think the writing might have been on the wall in the meeting. And that, you know, I was I was getting a raise and getting to go work for Sports Illustrated and getting a job where I was going to have a better quality of life than being on a beat, too. That was a huge thing for me. I mean, I worked my ass off at SI, but... I wasn't on a beat. I wasn't, you know, glued to my phone every hour of every day. And that's, you know, a great quality of life improvement, as you know.
0: I'm reading one of your uh, one of your pieces from the Denver Post. It's an exciting piece from uh, 2014. The headline is Broncos signed defensive end Hall Davis to practice squad. And your lead is the Broncos announced Tuesday that they signed defensive end Hall Davis to their practice squad. And I wonder, like, when, <laughs> when you're a beat writer and you don't really want to be a beat writer, Are you required to care about the Broncos signing Hall Davis to their practice squad? Or are you just going through the motions?
1: I I don't really remember who that is. Um, that (laughs) that person exists, I will say. And, you know, I was thinking when I, when I got laid off, you know, would I take another beat job and like, you know, maybe I would, I'm not saying I wouldn't, I loved being an NBA beat writer, loved it. But there's something about covering an NFL roster and all of the machinations that go into it that are a little bit soul sucking. I think, um, I love covering the NBA because there's 15 guys in that room. And, you know, I mean, I covered a team, the Minnesota Timberwolves that uh had a lot of 15 or whatever, the 15-day the contracts. I forget, I've forget; been so long, I can't even remember. So there was some movement on that roster, but it's just a little bit more personal there where it's, I don't think I ever talked to Ms. Mr. Davis that you just mentioned. Um I don't think I ever yeah, exchanged Paul words Davis. with him. And that's, Paul Davis, okay. That's something that, you know, that doesn't happen in the NBA or even in baseball. I mean, the NFL is just kind of, NFL beats are, I mean, props to everyone who does them. It's, it's a lot of work.
0: When you're covering football and you're writing about football a lot, I mean, you're, you see what the sport does to these people and you see the damage it does to them long-term and you know, the NFL is kind of sinister and a lot of, and it has a lot of big tobacco qualities to it. Do you feel like you sort of just have to kind of set that aside to a certain degree when you're writing about the sport?
1: You have to try to, and I, I probably do a bad job with that. Um, I, football is probably my least favorite sport. Um interesting. In general, which is funny because I've spent most of my career writing about it. Um it's the sport where you have to turn your brain off the most with with everything else. Um it's the sport, I mean, some of it is your numbers. There are more football players, there are more NFL players than there are NBA players. Um, just period the end. But some of it there's I think it's a sport with the most, you know, violence being perpetrated against women. It's a sport where the most players walk away, you know. Bruised, battered, and their brains are bashed in. It, it's very difficult. And I have had some great opportunities to write about, you know, both of those elements of things, both the, you know, the, the women, the problem, the football's problem with women and as well as football's problems with, with football players' brains. Um, and I, I would like to do that more going forward. I would love to have kind of the space to write more of those stories. That said, there are some great guys in football and I've had so much fun covering football at a micro level I think when you cover bigger picture trend stuff it's sometimes hard but then you go and I just my my last big magazine story was from I think two issues ago about Jonathan Taylor the Wisconsin running back who's a philosophy major mm-hmm. and who is just I mean gosh he's he's brilliant and he's you you see that story in the back of my mind though I'm thinking please don't get CTE Jonathan Taylor that would be awful you're brilliant but at the same time, you're meeting this person who has had so many doors unlocked because of football and is getting this amazing education at Wisconsin in some part because of football. So you, you go back and forth, I guess.
0: Wait, this is a really great story. I, I was reading this earlier. Uh, your lead was, when Jonathan Taylor was a senior in high school, he received a special graduation present from his family, a telescope. Pressed his eye and pointed to the heavens. The high-tech gadget became an extra appendage. Says Taylor's father, Jonathan James. That's when I knew he was Different. Different. Everyone from Taylor's running backs coach at Washington to his track coach at Salem High to his teammates in Madison uses that word to describe him. It's a compliment as much as an admission. None of them understand how the five foot 11, 219 pound junior, the leading non quarterback in the Heisman trophy race does what he does on a football field. Why'd you go with the, uh, why'd you go with the telescope? That's, a, in fact, how did it even come to the, how did the telescope even come up in a conversation that you knew it existed to write about?
1: Yeah, that was kind of a fun, um, fun and difficult lead to write because um, I spent a day with Jonathan at Wisconsin um, in August at some point before the season started. And he's, he's great. I can't sing his praises more. Um, Wisconsin is great. They're just, it's it's a team full of, I mean, obviously painting a broad with a broad brush there, but it's, it's a great team to, to write about. They're, they're very helpful and they've got some good guys. And um,
0: do you think Hall Davis would have fit in well in the Wisconsin Badgers?
1: Sure. Why not? Strong name, yeah. good Wisconsin name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyways, I, uh, I spent the, the day with part of the day with Jonathan and we talked about yoga, his yoga practice. We talked about the ins and outs of his philosophy major and how he even chose philosophy. And we talked about football. We watched film together. Um, Jonathan did not once bring up this telescope. And anyways, moved on, had some other lead ideas. He gave me a great bunch of great material. The next day I called his dad and his dad starts talking about this telescope And I'm like, well, I can't believe Jonathan didn't bring it up. But then I thought I'd go back through and I was like, there wasn't really a moment in here. I didn't ask him, do you have any cool science toys? I guess there maybe wasn't a moment that was the right moment for him to bring it up. And, you know, guy, I mean, you're poking into their lives sometimes. And no matter how great they are and forthcoming they are, sometimes, you know, they don't need they don't feel like they need to necessarily go the extra mile with stuff. So I talked to his dad at length about this telescope. And so then I had to call Wisconsin back and get Jonathan on the phone Right after his first game, the opening game of the year, when he I think he had five touchdowns, he had three rushing touchdowns and two receiving touchdowns. He had this crazy game and got him on the phone and was like, "Okay, man, so I need to know all about the telescope. And he burst out laughing and was kind of like, I should have told you about that. And we went through everything with the telescope and when he'd received it and, you know, how it was really important and how he hopes to maybe he, he doesn't have it at school right now because he didn't pack it up. He just kind of comes to school every year with a giant duffel bag. But you can't wait to, you know, maybe be in the NFL and have a nice house for his telescope to live in.
0: Those uh, those moments, those nuggets, when you find those little things, those are just the best. Just
1: no better moment. I mean, it's like you want to mute your if you're on the phone, you want to like mute your phone and cheer. And if you're in person, you have to like bite your tongue.
0: Do you feel like as a woman walking into unfamiliar locker rooms in 2019, 2018, last few years, It's now officially no big deal.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, no big deal. Maybe it's a little pretty close to no big deal, I would say. Um, I think everyone has a unique experience. Every woman in this industry, Um, I have been able to have a really great experience in locker rooms. Um, I've really very rarely ever been put in a position where I've felt uncomfortable. I mean, there's a certain inherent discomfort to being in a room with naked men. But beyond that, you get used to that really quick. I was lucky in that most of my my beat stops that I was on um, in Minnesota and then in Denver, there were really awesome women who commanded a ton of respect who either were already in that locker room and who had been there for a while. Um, in Minnesota, I think I was the only woman who wrote about the team on a consistent basis. But there, um, there's a sideline reporter, she also calls some Twins games now, Marnie Gellner, who had been around working for the Fox Sports Affiliate in Minneapolis for several years and is just a consummate pro. And so they were used to Marnie being in there. And so with me it was just cool here's another woman who asks questions like Marnie does and that's that never had never had even I mean close to an issue there in Denver Lindsay Jones who works for the Athletic now and who is one of my my closest friends Lindsay had been on the Broncos beat at the post for several years before I got there and her departure somewhat precipitated my hiring and uh Lindsay been there you know Doing the same thing, being a consummate pro, asking great, great questions, presenting a front that never gave guys. I mean, obviously no one invites anything, but if you go in there dressed professionally and ask the same questions as the guys, the players, generally speaking, will just look at you like the guys. Um, so I, I was lucky to have those paths sort of very recently blazed for me in those locker rooms where the guys just were used to women being around. That said, nice. there's always somebody who's a jerk and, you know, some guys just don't like to wear their towels and, that's that, but especially in this day and age, there are so many women out there. I think there's been a great, you know, the industry has, I think there's more women, well, far more women in the industry now than there were when I started even. I mean, you see all these talented young women coming in and getting these great beat jobs. And there's just, there's a lot of us now. Um, so you can't, you can't be annoyed there are women in there because you'd have to kick a lot of people out.
0: I imagine if it's more uncomfortable for you than me, it would not be by as much as you think to yeah. to be interviewing some guy while he's naked. Like, yeah. I hate it just I it's just not comfortable, period. Like I think people think, oh, it must be really hard for women. Put a towel on. Like I can't stand it. I never like it. Exactly. I think it's the weirdest. I don't want you talking to me when I'm the I like it's just weird. You know, it's like a weird dynamic for anyone.
1: So Exactly. I mean who has to do that in their job? It's absurd. Yeah.
0: Um Yeah, it's it's super weird. Before we continue with two riders sling and yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my friend Bev Odin, former United States Olympic volleyball player. So Bev, I want you to start in this ad for 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, and I'd love for you to read it. I guess so. Okay, just read right here. Hi, this is Beverly Oden, 26 time Olympian and the greatest volleyball player who's ever lived. And right before I beat the Cuban national team one on six, wait, what? Just keep reading.
1: Right before I beat the Cuban national team one on six and also right before the NCAA named me its greatest athlete of all time, Jeff, that never
0: happened. Seriously, just keep reading. And right before I won my 790th Olympic gold medal. Jeff, honestly, I can't do this. I'm not ruining my reputation with a bunch of exaggerations and lies. Did I mention that by doing this ad, you'll receive your own 503 Sports Reggie White Memphis Showboats jersey with the custom lettering and all?
1: Should I mention I was the first woman to pilot a spacecraft to Pluto?
0: I would. What do you do now? Like, what do you do? Like, I don't mean, what are you doing now? I mean, like, what's... <laughs> so, what do you do? How do you go about this?
1: It's a great question. I mean, I'm... Everyone keeps telling me I need to unplug. And I'm, I think I'm going to. I'm very fortunate in that I... I'm. Like I said, I'm here in St. Louis, um, hanging out with my family. One of my best friends is having her bachelorette party in New Orleans next weekend. And my brother has lived down there for 10 years. My family actually... Has a house down there. My whole family went to Tulane. Um, a lot of New Orleans connections. I was planning to go down on Tuesday and do a story on Tulane and its offense because Tulane is very bizarrely good enough, at, good at football this year. So I have a flight to New Orleans on Tuesday that I'm just retaining and I'm going to go to New Orleans and hang out for a little while and, uh, enjoy some of my favorite city in the country. And then at that point, I'm going to try to figure this out. I would love to try to, you know, find a job that seems somewhat like my job at sports illustrated. I don't know if those jobs are available right now. Maybe string together some freelancing and just keep writing. Um I feel okay, but I feel like something'll come up and I have some book ideas and you know, I feel like maybe I have some time to work on some projects that have been in the back of my mind. Um and I haven't had time to do them because, you know, as I mean as you well know, this is a job that's more than a full-time job. It takes over your life and Maybe there's something marinating in the back of my head I can use the next couple months um, where I'm, you know, financially okay to so maybe not yet be getting a full time job to work on that.
0: What happens at Sports Illustrated?
1: <sighs> Gosh, I don't. I wish I. I wish I had like a happy answer. I don't have any idea. I, like you mentioned Steve Canella is one of the co editors in chief along with Ryan Hunt, or who are two. They're two guys I've worked with closely for the last five and a half years who are brilliant and you know great at their jobs and i don't know what leeway they'll be given to make sports illustrated what it should be but you know if anybody can do it that isn't chris stone or mark mccluskey or one of the the, other guys who are like oh we're also phenomenal it's you know those guys know how to put out a great magazine but it's just i don't know what the resources are going to be like um and you know if if the dead spin story that came out yesterday is comes true which i mean i Feel they probably did great reporting, and you know have a lot of confidence in that story. It's it's going to be a tough road ahead for for those there, but I mean, like I keep telling everyone, there's still so much talent there. Even if it's you know what two two thirds of the talent that was there on Wednesday, it's it's still a lot of people who are not only talented. I keep saying talented, but like hardworking people. You don't get to Sports Illustrated and just sit there and rely on your talent. You work your ass off.
0: The story you're referring to is called uh, "Inside the Maven's Plan to Turn Sports Illustrated." into a rickety content mill is written by Laura Wagner, uh, Kelsey McKinney and David Roth. And David Roth, by the way, is a freaking great writer. And, um, yes, the Maven, which instigated the tortured layoffs of dozens of people on Thursday, claims it will continue to carry on sports Illustrated's tradition of high quality journalism while simultaneously launching hundreds of content farms to churn out quote unquote, local sports news or use a model similar to that of SB nation team sites. Now the subject of two federal collective action lawsuits, uh, Fan-sided Sports Illustrated's last exploitative appendage and Rivals.com and, uh, and Scout.com. Irrelevant and failed ventures, respectively, that were both championed by Levinson and Heckman in the early 2000s. <sighs> yeah. I mean, seriously, it's freaking... I mean, I did, I'm going to keep this exasperation in because it's very real. Like, a lot of times <laughs> I edit this podcast and I'll be like, oh, take out the... But like... <laughs> I feel like you and I have something shared here, even though we're, we're separated by time at the magazine. And that is like, it's almost like, it's almost hard to explain to people how sports illustrated was bigger than everything else. And that it was, yeah, it was just, it just mattered. And the writing was so ridiculously good from top to bottom. And right. It felt grand and it felt, Important. And it was like you had Time Magazine, you had the New York Times, you had the Washington Post, you had the Wall Street Journal, you had Sports Illustrated. And maybe there were a couple of others in that group, but not many. That's how I kind of view it. I don't know if you feel that same way, but that is exactly how I, I viewed it.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing about SI too, and I'm sure you felt this way, was I guess it's sort of a long winded way to say it, but back when I was an intern, I had an internship at Sports Illustrated over the summer. And then I'd also been lucky enough to get a follow-up internship that next fall at the Dallas Morning News. So when I got to New York for my SI internship, I had my next kind of seven, eight months booked out. And um, I'm a Midwesterner um, and I'm, I probably would make a poor New Yorker. um, And uh, I felt that in my mind on my way to New York, I was like, this is going to be an amazing experience, but like, I bet I won't like the people there as much because I don't know. I'm just Mm -hmm. such like this Midwestern girl. And then I'll go to Dallas and I'll, you know, that'll be where I really feel at home. And this is no knock on the Dallas morning news. There people, everyone there was wonderful to me too. And I had a great internship. When I left Sports Illustrated, I was like, there's no way I'm ever going to work with better people than the people I met this summer. I was like, I love everyone. I like, I was, there was no one I had anything bad to say about. It was, it was so funny thinking back on my mindset going into it. And it was just like, these people are like not only like gods of journalism, but they're the kindest people you'll ever meet. I, I worked that summer, I helped Peter King out with a project he was doing where we were surveying the 1986 Bengals, which Peter had covered them. He was on the beat, I think, for the Cincinnati Enquirer, mm-hmm. And we were going through to find out the health status of every single player on that team 25 years later. Right. And so I helped Peter with this project. I was a fact checker, but I did a bunch of interviews um, in terms of Peter kind of gave us the interview to do. But I, I asked, you know, a lot of questions to get this sort of health database put up. And I, I helped Peter with it. And I kept helping Peter a little bit after I left my internship because the story wasn't done yet. The generosity Peter King showed me for doing for literally doing my job, for helping out the best football writer in America, Do his job. Peter acted like I had, you know, moved mountains for him. And that's everyone at SI. And so on top of like the, you know, the kind of the legendary status of the the pros, it's like the people creating that are just these, you know, wonderful human beings.
0: So let me ask you a final question. There's a uh, 20 year old kid at Northwestern or Delaware or Syracuse or whatever, who really wants to go into sports media right now, sports journalism. Are you saying do it? Or are you a little less, Are you a little more reluctant about sort of giving that advice in 2019 than maybe you were a year ago?
1: That's such a good question. I I, I think about it all the time because I I talk every semester to the sports writing class at Mizzou and, you know, you can't help but think that way when you walk into a classroom, you know, what, what should I be telling these kids? And I felt like when I was in school, um, there were some well-intentioned people who were trying to help me out with jobs and stuff who maybe sold me a bit of a bill of goods about how certain things might work. And, I don't ever want to be that person. Um, I don't want to project false optimism onto anyone. But at the same time, as somebody who got into this industry, like like we talked about earlier in sort of a circuitous way and had other options. Um, I mean, I'm sure everyone has other options, but I had other very different options, I guess, career wise. And this was a dream and I got to live my dream and I hope I still get to live my dream. I hope I, you know, somebody wants to hire me to cover a team or write features for them and I would regret so much if I hadn't tried out my dream. And if you know what, like everything keeps crumbling tomorrow and I just have to go open a Pilates studio or something. um, (laughs) I will still be so happy that I did this and that I lived out my dream and tried my tried. And that's easy for me to say also because I've had really supportive parents who have been able to, you know, maybe help me out a little bit when I've needed it. When I my first job, you know, paid me thirty two thousand dollars a year to live in, you know, a major metropolitan area. And Mm -hmm. I've been very lucky on that front. And that's a real concern in sports journalism to me and journalism in general, that it sort of weeds out people who don't have that support. So if somebody were saying, you know, I'm going to have to mortgage all of my savings to do this, I might caution them. (laughs) But if somebody said, you know, I've got support. This is my dream. If my dream blows up in a year, I know I'll be okay. I'd tell them to do it because God, the best days of my life have been tied to really my job at Sports Illustrated. Some of the best moments I've had are because I had that job and was, afforded these insane opportunities. I and mean, I got to go to the masters. I got to see Tiger Woods win the masters in April. That's yeah, like, cool. Who gets yeah. to do that? Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely caution, but if somebody has, like I said, the support and resources, give it, give it a try. You could get really lucky right. if you work hard.
0: I always say, you know, when I was at SI early on, Jack McCallum once said, he said, you're not going to be the richest, but you're going to have the best stories at your class. reunion."
1: That is a hundred percent. The truth.
0: Don't let me throw a, uh, let me throw a final thing at you. I, uh, I gotta throw you mentioned writing books, and I think I have a good topic for you. So I want an open mind on this, okay? Yes. Okay. He was a kid from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was uh, he played his high school ball at Baton Rouge University School, his college ball at Louisiana Lafayette. He was a fifth round draft pick in two thousand ten by the St. Louis Rams. He bounced from the Redskins <laughs> to the Titans to the Raiders to the Browns to the Cowboys to the Steelers to the Broncos, where he was profiled by a certain traitorous writer who departed the newspaper for Sports Illustrated. Today Paul Davis sits at home in Louisiana waiting for someone to write his story.
1: As someone who is flying to Louisiana on Tuesday, this sounds like a great next step.
0: <laughs> Paul's waiting by the phone going, ring, <laughs> ring, please. <laughs> ring.
1: If you're listening, Paul, yeah. I hope you had a great career.
0: Well, listen, Joan, seriously, I mean, you'd admire your writing. I think you're great. It doesn't do you any good, but I, I, I mean, I think you're going to have a long career in this business. I just think this is a speed bump that you're going to look back at. And I, I honestly, I appreciate you sort of taking time to talk with me about it. I really do. It sucks, but I, I, I just think you're great.
1: Well, that's all too kind. And um, this was so fun. I, I don't have a ton on my schedule these days. I mean, this will be fun on a packed day, but uh, I'm pretty antsy. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm a pretty high energy person. Right. So it's been fun to sit here and chat about some of the most fun I've ever had in my life.
0: I want to thank today's guest, Joe Neeson, for joining me on Two Writers and Yang. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Neeson. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sing and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And your views are always appreciated. Music is by the Dowsing MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.